Okay, so chapter 14, we spent some time a couple of weeks ago talking about John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000. Last week we talked about tradition kind of in general, and we also talked about the story of the Canaanite woman. And tonight we're going to talk about another feeding, uh, this time feeding of the 4,000. And then there's a couple of other passages which hopefully we'll get to uh, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about interpreting the signs and then uh, what he means when he's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees. I'd like to start off by trying to recap a little bit of what happened last week. And this is just in part because afterwards I talked to a lot of people and a lot of different conversations were going on. So it seemed like an issue, uh, at least, um, that was interesting. So I just wanted to give kind of a general definition of tradition, and please interrupt at any time. I'm just trying to give a, a real quick overview. But I thought I was thinking about this over the week, and to me it seems there's two ways to define tradition. There's the capital T tradition, which might include like the Bible and church fathers and other things like that. Then there's like lowercase t tradition, which might include eating a ham on Easter or something of that nature, which I want to make sure we don't get those confused. Um, I know some, sometimes they're hard to figure out where one might go, but I was just kind of offering that as a definition of tradition. But part of tradition, again, is just how do we interpret and how do we understand things. And so when we read our Bibles and when we disagree, often what we're doing is we're bringing in our own biases and presuppositions and we're just trying to figure it out. And that's what goes on in Exodus too. I think that's good. So I just want to say that that's, that's a good thing, but that's what is going on. And uh, last week, John and I were trying to figure out some way to actually, we were saying, is there any one thing that every Christian could agree on? Any thoughts? <laughs> one thing that we could all agree on? There is a God. That's where it goes being Christian. But that wouldn't make you exclusively Christian. I mean, you could be... Uh, Hindu and believe in a God. I'm just, what would make us specifically Christian? I put the resurrection, and what I tried to do is, was show that perhaps at some level there's like some like really basic thing, but then as we go further up, the issues become a little less solid. So we might say resurrection is foundational, but then we've got like interpretation and doctrine. And one thing I was thinking of, baptism. How do we baptize? And the reason John and I and others were, talk, were thinking about this is, I think in um, Paul who talks about uh, not dividing over issues. And yet, we seem to divide over these like issues up here, which really is problematic. I could see us dividing, right? If somebody said, I don't believe Jesus resurrected. Okay, maybe you're not a Christian. I mean, you, at, at the end of the day, you might be able to part ways, right? But uh, what was it, the Anabaptists, right, who were, kill or were being killed 300 years ago for believing in baptism a certain way, and just all the different things that go on in our church, I just want us to keep this in mind, and, and again, this is like really basic, right? This could probably be expanded into, I don't know, 10, 20 categories of things. Keep in mind, what are the types of things we disagree over, and are they really that important? Where, where would they fall? So... I just kind of wanted to recap that. I'm not really going to offer some conclusive, this is where everything goes. But think about it. Um, because a lot of times we get into these fights, right? and then at the very top are the subjective issues, which are mostly just cultural things. And I bet a lot of the things we disagree over 
might even fall there, which is, which is frustrating. Okay? All right, so let's move on. We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 15, 29 through 31. Let's start there. After Jesus had left that place, remember this is um, after the Canaanite woman, he passed along the Sea of Galilee and he went up the mountain where he sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet and he cured them, so that the crowd was amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. At the bottom here, I have this question. Who is Jesus healing? And I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it. Uh, last week, I mentioned that there are only two stories in the Gospel of Matthew before Christ's uh, crucifixion, where he interacts or where he heals Gentiles. We're going to go on to the next passage, but I want you to keep that question in mind because some scholars will argue that this crowd here is a Gentile crowd, and others are going to argue that it was a Jewish crowd, and we're going to ask questions about that and about the text. Good, so keep that question in mind. Nothing really controversial there. He's just healing a bunch of people. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in the desert to feed so great a crowd? Jesus asked them, How many loaves have you? They said, Seven and a few small fish. Does it sound familiar? So what? this two chapters ago, we had the feeding of the... 5,000, okay? So here we have another story of Jesus feeding another 4,000. Isn't it interesting that his disciples ask him, where are we going to get all this food? It's like they have collective amnesia. <laughs> oh, that's right, he fed 5,000 two chapters ago. Where are we going to feed 4,000 now? Are there any comparisons to our practical lives? Do we ever do this? Probably pretty often, actually. At least I find myself, you know, Jesus gets me through a time and then later I think, where are you now? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> of course, they respond. Then ordering the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And after giving thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all of them ate and were filled. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Okay, so the disciples took up the food. I'm going to keep that in mind. Those who had eaten were 4,000 men, besides women and children, so it was probably a much larger crowd. After sending away the crowds, he got into a boat. How did the story of the 5,000 end? He gets into a boat there, too. And he went to the region of Magadan. Now, in the other one, when he gets in the boat, we had some conversation about he was being hurried or you know, he was trying to get away. This text doesn't indicate that. He's not being pressed. Why would we question whether or not this crowd was Gentile or Jewish? What's been the overlaying theme so far of his ministry? Yeah, what does he say to the Canaanite woman? And we had this conversation last week. Does he, like, greet her openly when he first meets her? No, in fact, he, well, we had this debate right between Monique and John. Is he being provocative or is she just persistent? And probably both. But yeah, you notice that how did they, 
How do they respond when they're healed? Right. So would that give you an indication that they're Jewish or Gentile? Gentile. Because they're praying to the God of Israel and there's enough Israel and calling them Jews on them. Right. It might be kind of strange to refer to your own God in the third person. What else might be an indicator that he's talking to Gentiles? What was the previous story? Canaanite woman. And the region he's in, the Sea of Galilee, is basically where Gentiles would have lived. So some scholars suggest that because of the place he's actually in, and because of the fact that they talk about praising the God of Israel, that he's talking about Gentiles. Others, though, disagree. They argue that in this place, of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was walking by, that there would have actually been Jewish communities along the road. So the crowd would have been Jewish. Would it matter? A little bit, because especially taken in the context of the last passage we looked at, that at least in some perspective, it seems he was at first unwilling to heal a Gentile person at all, and much less acknowledge them. And here where he spends three days having compassion on these people and healing them, it would, if they were a Gentile crowd, it would, it would just seem bizarre. Like, I don't know how that would be perfectly reconciled, or if it was a Jewish crowd, it would be easier to reconcile. So I think it makes a difference in that regard. Okay. John? But I don't think we could take him at his word about the I only came to Israel. I think that's part of the wrestling he's having with the woman, because he ultimately does heal her, and she is clearly a Canaanite woman. So we know she's a Gentile, and he heals her. So now that we know that he's already healed at least one Canaanite woman, it wouldn't be strange if he started healing other Gentiles. Whether these are Gentiles or not, at least it wouldn't be violative of what he said earlier. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that because I, mean, I, I, I wouldn't say like beyond possibility. Because obviously, yeah, he did heal her in the end, but it, regardless of whether how we take his statements, it was a struggle for this woman to get healed. Like she had to be persistent and like basically endure being talked about as less of a person than like the Israelites. And that's how Jesus referred to them or referred to her. And so I, I wouldn't see this beyond the normal possibility that Jesus could heal and care about the four thousand Gentiles afterwards. But I feel like that would be a huge stretch after just the previous thing. Like that that's more of my issue. <clears throat> Does it bother anybody that in the text of Matthew he's really not concerned with the Gentiles? I think we've kind of seen this before where he's writing to a Jewish crowd and they wouldn't really necessarily care either. Right, we have to keep the role of, of Matthew in mind, right, who's putting this together. John? I think the God of Israel is still telling us that Dustin was right. You know, Matthew being a Jew writing this, you know, writing this kind of thing making clear that it's the, that it's Israel's God that they praise that you wouldn't do that if you just said you just say God. And in the Old Testament it does write in the Old Testament like Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh and a bunch of other non-Jewish kings who would eventually praise the God of Israel specifically because of his mighty work. It just kind of has an echo. Okay. Anyone else? Just so you know, uh, most scholars think this is a Jewish crowd. And we don't need to get into the details of why, but, and again, throughout the history of the Christian tradition, 
the perspective on what this crowd is has changed significantly. But it, it, does, it does matter at least to us, right? Because we want to feel like we're included in Jesus' ministry. And so far up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, when it comes to Jesus' interaction with people who are not Jewish, it, it's kind of scary. Okay. By the way, um, it's completely possible, right, that this crowd could be Jewish and that every other person who Jesus interacted with besides the centurion and besides the Canaanite women were Jewish. It doesn't seem that the Jewish people had a problem with Jesus. Who had the biggest problem with Jesus? The Pharisees. So it's quite possible that you could have, right, and you have this, uh, these fights that go on between Jesus and the Pharisees, but it's quite possible that at, at a different level, the people, they don't really care. It's not that they don't care, but you could see how they're not really concerned with, hey, your disciples broke the Sabbath. Like, I'm, I'm hurt. Heal me, please. Okay, so, I mean, it's not, we could, we could at least think of a situation like that. Okay, so, also, and nobody brought this up. Uh, some people have argued that this is just uh, a retelling of the same story. Uh, the the, re, the uh, story of the 4,000 being fed is the same story as the 5,000. It's just inserted the second time. But actually... Uh, in the Greek, and especially in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, Mark is very clear. He says, and then a, he came upon another crowd. So it actually creates the distinction that Jesus did this miracle at least more than once. Yeah. Well, yeah, Mark, even like, after that, he's explaining to the disciples and talks about, like, well, how many did I use to feed the 5,000? And how many did I use to feed the 4,000, Mike? In Mark, it's much more explicit. In the Gospel of, again, you can see Matthew editing a little bit. Okay. And that's not bad, by the way. I'm just saying, and we're, again, we're not going to go into Mark, but one day it would be very interesting to do like an analysis of the different, okay, maybe I would find it interesting. <laughs> Nobody else would. But. So now, uh, that's the end of chapter 15. So Jesus has just fed 4,000 people, and the disciples have seen this again. In fact, they have gathered up seven baskets worth of bread. We're moving on to chapter 16. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came. By the way, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. That's important for this passage. Uh, they came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away, and everyone had perfect understanding. <laughs> ben. What are, they, I mean, what are they asking him to show? Because I feel like he just gave him lots of signs. Now, remember, he's no longer with the crowd, right? He got in the boat and he sailed. So presumably, these Pharisees and Sadducees don't have any knowledge of, of what's just occurred and whether or not they have any, right? What kind of sign are they looking for? Well, uh, they could be looking for a sign that he's the Messiah. Uh, they could be looking for a sign that he's what he claims he, he is to be. But interesting, how does he respond to them? What's the analogy he gives? <laughs> that of being a weatherman. Yeah, you guys are good weathermen, but you don't really understand. Anybody know what the sign of Jonah refers to? I know the story of Jonah, but I'm not. Okay, what happens in the story of Jonah? He's, he's called to do something, I forget what, and then, and then he runs with, with a bunch of fishermen, goes out to the sea, throw him off, or he jumps off, and he gets 
uh, swallowed by the whale. Right. So Jonah gets asked to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, which at the time was the mortal enemies of, of Israel. The Assyrians were very, very brutal people. In fact, one of the, you know, they, they, used to, uh, they used to take the heads of local villagers, put them on pikes, and then stand outside the, you know, the king's castle and say, if you don't come out, we're going to do this to you. Um, you could understand why Jonah doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to go to the capital city of Nineveh. Um, Jonah gets thrown in the belly of the whale, and then after three days, what? Can I just cut you guys? It's big fish. Oh, big fish. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Big fish. Jonah swallowed by the big fish, and after three days, what happens to Jonah? Yeah, he's delivered out of the belly of the fish. What would be the parallel then? He's just dying and raising again three days later. Right. Now, the Pharisees don't get this, and the Sadducees wouldn't get this at all, because for them, no resurrection. He's, he says, look, the, the sign of Jonah, in the same way that Jonah was in the belly for three days and then was reborn, so to speak, uh, in the same way, this will happen to me. Look, notice he doesn't even respond to them. They ask for a sign. He, calls, he says, well, you guys are pretty good at forecasting the weather, but here, uh, let me talk about the sign of Jonah and not explain it to you, then I'm going to move on. Aren't they kind of tempting them too, like the devil did? Like, hey, you know, you could do the, if you're supposed to be like what you said you were or whatever, like, do, show us a sign. Like, turn this bread into, I mean, it's rocking the bread here. It's possible. Yeah, Ryan. But don't you think, like, like here the Pharisees are looked at as like the bad guys for the most part, but isn't that honest? Like, don't we sometimes ask for a sign or, like, want to be honest with the Lord and just be like, Lord, you know, show me what you want. Or, you know, if you're real, like, reveal yourself to me. So I think, like, certain things are honest. And even, like, with Moses, like, Moses says, God, show yourself to me, you know? And so why all of a sudden are the Pharisees the ones that are like, oh, no, you're wicked and perverse for asking for a sign, when we all know that probably each and every one of us in this room would probably ask the Lord the same thing? Why is that so wrong, you know? Casey? I was just thinking a lot of times, too, they do it in a mockery. Like they're making fun of him. Not necessarily in that, but like in certain parts, they want to see a sign just to be like, come on, you can do it. Like they're teasing him. So I don't waste my time. Like I know who I am. Phil? And I think it's not necessarily the connection of the medieval and adulterous generation because they're asking for a sign. Like, I mean, say Moses asked for a sign, or like, to some degree, like, got it. You have a Gideon that like asked for multiple signs and got them, you know? Like, but I think. Even in previous parts, we've seen like Jesus doesn't think highly of the Pharisees, and so like it's because of the other things they're doing is like no, you don't deserve a sign, so you're not going to get it, except for the sign of Jonah, which you won't get. <laughs> John, I think we have to read it as a paragraph because what he's saying is you can see the signs in nature and you understand them. So how is it that you can't understand these signs that are already in front of you, basically? You're an evil adultist generation, not because you ask for a sign. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you need a sign because you're an adultist generation. You're not connected to the Father anymore. You don't understand what's happening. Like, you can read weather patterns, but you can't read what God is doing right in your midst. So that's why you're asking for a sign. It proves that you're evil and adulterous and disconnected from the Father. Otherwise, you'd be able to read these signs the way you could read the weather. It's true. He does, he does give them a sign, right? I mean, here it says, but no sign will be given except... So they ask for one, he gives them one, but the question is, 
do they really understand the context as it relates to the sign of Jonah? I mean, I'm sure they, they all know the story of Jonah, but the idea that most people had at this time was the Messiah is going to come and rescue us from Rome. And whether or not the Pharisees are operating on that level, we, we surely see that in the disciples. Because later on in Matthew, they're going to ask these questions. But it's a good question, at least, to wonder what, what the Pharisees even had in mind for asking for a sign. But it's not explicit here. Do we look for signs still? What's interesting is I think some people could look at this and say, oh, look, Jesus is saying don't look for signs. Well, he's not really having a conversation about looking for signs and not looking for signs. I think he's just trying to, he's trying to reorient their question. And these guys, he figures, are smart enough, so they should have an answer. They should understand, right? Because the disciples always got it. Matthew chapter 16, 5 through 12. Now, when the disciples reached the other side, so Jesus has gone ahead of them again in the boat, the disciples come over, they had forgotten to bring any bread. <laughs> I don't think this part's in Mark. For those of you who know, the, in the tradition, the, the writer of Mark was St. Peter. <laughs> he, doesn't, he always leaves out those like, you know, hey, we're idiots type statements. Uh, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They said to one another, it is because we have brought no bread. Okay, so let's stop there. So what does yeast do? What's that? Bread Makes bread rise. Okay. And Jesus has just had a conversation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. His disciples show up. And then the first thing he says, at least according to the text, is not, hey, what's going on? How's your trip? Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, what's their response? We forgot the bread. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, somebody go buy bread. Okay. And verse 8, Jesus at some point becomes aware of this, that they're talking to each other, and hey, we forgot the bread. And Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Okay. Now remember, the, they haven't even been there, right, for the whole Pharisee, Sadducee thing. So they're, they're really getting reamed here. Do you still, he says, do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now we get this at verse 12. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm not sure, though, if we had not read 12, I'm not sure I still would have gotten it. I probably would have been like the, the 13th disciple standing there like, I don't get it. Okay, you're out. Um, <laughs> yeah, what's going on here? Why, why is he uh, telling them to be afraid of the yeast of the Pharisees? What is the analogy then? What does the yeast stand for? What I'm understanding is like the yeast, like a little bit of yeast uh, makes the whole loaf of bread grow. Um, so I think what they're, what Jesus is trying to say is with the yeast and the bread, so the yeast would be the teachings. He was talking about the Pharisees with them, the teachings were wicked. So beware of that because it will spread like the yeast and the bread. John? He's already made this analogy like two chapters ago in the parable of the yeast, where he was saying the kingdom of God is like yeast that worked its way through the whole dough in a large batch of dough. So he's already said that the kingdom of God is like that. 
So here I think he's really warning, well, he reveals it in verse 12. He's warning about their teaching, but he's saying, be careful because their teaching can work its way through the bread. It may not be point for point, directly you know, like one bread versus the other bread, but we clearly know what Matthew, at least, has already interpreted this yeast bread analogy as it's going to spread throughout, either for good or in this case for bad. We could like retitle the next, or like these two chapters, like bread, or like stories of bread. Um, you can see the, but you can see the consistent theme throughout. And John's right. Uh, we, can, we can talk about this, perhaps we can spiritualize this, or we can talk about just beyond the text for a second. And we can even see the expansion of the bread, right, as the expansion of the church. I mean, it's, again, it's not explicit in the text, but you could see, again, how John pointed out, that if you had bad teaching at the beginning, it could be problematic. And it could be especially problematic, and you'll notice you've got Pharisees and Sadducees, especially with the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, that could be a real problem. And in fact, there were Christians later in the tradition who came up with very different perspectives. In fact, but you could see how bad teaching could go a very long way. As far as yeast and bread is concerned, um, yeast is an activator and it helps the development, it helps the bread to be what it's supposed to be. So I think that's a pretty clear point here too is, okay, you need to be aware of these people because they're trying to hinder you from becoming what you're supposed to be and by extension undo all the work we've done. Correct. So the yeast might stand as an analogy not just for the growth of the church, but for the growth of an individual as well. It's Joe saying, you know, the activator, which is a really good way of thinking about that. Yeah, we have the luxury of, of being post-resurrection, right? So we go back, and actually, the people who would have been reading this gospel would have had that luxury as well. I mean, these were all written after Jesus had resurrected in the church, the church era, so to speak, had begun. But... Um, we have the luxury of going back and saying, oh, the yeast, this, the yeast, or the teachings, this, teachings, that. But it must have been really hard for the disciples. I, I imagine it being very difficult. Because not only do the, the Pharisees and Sadducees don't understand what he's saying. I mean, can you imagine being a disciple? Now, just after this, though, Peter is actually going to get it. Um, well, but then later he won't, right? And it's this constant battle between Peter getting it, Peter not getting it. But I just, I think these passages are very important. I, I think from what we started in chapter 15 to about this point in 16 is a nice section, a nice way to bracket that, that part of the text. Yeah, John. Real briefly, I think it's important to note that you cannot unleaven bread. And I think that's an important thing. That's why he keeps using yeast, because once it's in there, you can't take it out. It's going to infect the whole dough. It like starts to do its work. I think the other thing that I pointed out when I was reading this was the Pharisees and the Sadducees would hate each other normally. Here they're teamed up against mm. Jesus. That they're together. Just the, the fact that they are even in any kind of alliance together must show that Jesus is becoming increasingly a threat because they would have never even really had any reason to associate together on anything. Yeah, in fact, if I recall, and it's been a while since I've I've read this, the Sadducees were even, they were from a different socioeconomic class. They were wealthier. Um, some of them, yeah, I mean, John's, they, they really wouldn't have had conversation with each other. 
either Jesus has said something at some point that they both disagree with, or his ministry is becoming a real problem for them. And I, I mean, if he's attracting crowds of 12 to 15,000 people and feeding them, then yeah, it would become a problem. Yeah. Do you think Jesus cares about seeing the Pharisees and Sadducees be won over to his side, or are they just a lost cause? Because it always kind of bugs me how, like, you know, I get why he kind of continually rebukes them, but at the same time, we conceive of God as being so all-inclusive sometimes that it's weird that, you know, that you don't really see him be like, but secretly I hope that they come to believe in me. You might have a thought on this. A little footnote in the text. Yeah. And God prayed for the Pharisees. <laughs> Anyone else? No one has a thought on this? It's not abundantly clear, at least, from the text. right? And he spends, at least all of the recording, all the text that we have, and the vast majority of the Gospels is Jesus arguing. Now, it's possible, right? The most famous Pharisee who came to Christ, Saul. Okay. Uh, it's possible that after resurrection that there were other Pharisees and other teachers who, who were convinced by what they saw. But we don't really get that story. Right, we have Nicodemus. So he's in John, but, but I mean, it's in the context of the conversation with Nicodemus that he announces the whole John 3.16 concept and being born again. So it's less rebuking. I mean, he's still not... There's no indication that Nicodemus converts, but I mean, it's a much more, he's really trying to explain it to Nicodemus. And by the way, how do most of the Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus? Yeah, with argument in hand. I'm going to corner him right here. At least these guys. Now again, I'm not, we can't say for all Pharisees, but now yeah, we get the idea that they're not really coming to say, let's have a conversation. They're like, how can we get this guy? That's a great question. It would be really interesting to know if any of these men became believers. Yeah, Randy. Also, too, with the Pharisees and everything, like, ultimately, he knows their heart. Like, he knows that they're going to be the ones who want to try him and kill him later. Like, he knows which ones are going to be, you know. Again, we can draw out many conclusions that these Pharisees and Sadducees, they weren't really interested in hearing what he had to say. In Luke 14, he has dinner at the chief Pharisee's house. And there's no indication that he was going there other than to go and sit with them and dine with them, too. So I think you're right. We always get this impression that he's really opposing the Pharisees, but it's usually because they're opposing him. But there are other, like Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Luke 14, he goes to the chief Pharisee's house and dines with them and teaches them there. So not every interaction is the kind that we're used to seeing, but. Those don't seem to come up much in Matthew. I think that's probably part of the reason we haven't encountered them. They're in other Gospels. Do you, do you feel at ease now, Megan? <laughs> a little bit. Okay, a little bit. We've solved one dilemma for the night. Okay, so there's, uh, we're gonna, this, this is it for tonight, just ending at chapter 12, and then next week John is, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 12, and then next week we've got John back up here. So if there, if there aren't any other comments... I don't think that there's really anything too controversial in these texts. I think last week, because we worked out a lot of the issues about tradition, and we worked out a lot of the issues about the Canaanite woman, that it's a little bit easier to see that at least these next few verses are a continuation of that, and then kind of ending here. Good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity again to 
to come and to read your scriptures and to think about them and to challenge one another. And I just pray that you'll be with us for the rest of this evening as we worship and as we go off to eat. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.